there, everybody, and welcome to our podcast, I Need to Effing Talk to You. My name is Russell Stratton, and my co-host, Ken Cameron. Hi, everybody. Glad to be with you again. So what we wanted to talk about today is Ken and I have been enjoying over recent months a number of uh, Zoom calls, as no doubt many of you have done, MS Teams, Skype, any other um, online um, opportunity to communicate with each other as we can't do face-to-face um, due to COVID. And one of the things that we've been noticing is an increase in the use of what I would term um, bullshit bingo. Those are phrases that we often hear said in a corporate setting and sometimes overused that tend to grate on you when you hear them. And what we thought we would do is actually uh, go and create our own bullshit bingo uh, play sheet so that you can go ahead and uh, download and play with it yourself when you're next in one of those um, exciting corporate meetings or reading one of those large, lengthy corporate documents. So um, what do you think about that, Ken? Well, Russell, I'm really glad that you reached out so that we could circle the wagons around this topic because I think there's a lot of learnings that we can really get into if we take a deep dive into the pain points or at least look at this at a more granular level and be able to fast track this conversation to look at some of these problematic phrasings and words. Well, I'm glad you said that, Ken, because I think it's mission critical that we're able to to fast track the incentivization of the synergy um, that will create the secret source and enable us to turnkey this project. But perhaps it may be a little problematic, so why don't we park this and come back to it later? Yes, let's take this offline, and we can uh, talk about that later and get back to our main point here around the bullshit bingo. Well, I'm glad that you're uh, enrolling in our engagement of this, Ken. So uh, I think think we'll make a start. Yes, I think we've gotten our key message across to our core audience. I think so. And I think many of us will have, in just hearing that, will have recognized the number of those phrases that that come up that uh, uh, we all hear. And no doubt you have some of your uh, favorites as well. So when you're listening to this, um, if you want to share your favorite overused corporate terms that you think would be ideal for bullshit bingo, feel free to put them into the comments below. Um, But the way we thought we'd run this is Ken and I had sort of identified a few of these that were um, particular phrases that we, uh, I don't know if he likes the right word, Ken, is it? No, I think more like despise or make my skin crawl are more accurate phrases, really. Okay, so with, with that with that in mind, making your skin crawl, um, what would be one that, that would definitely get under your skin then? Well, that's a great question, Russell. I think that one of the first phrases that really troubles me is, is that one right there. That's a great question. Really, um, it really grates on my nerves because what I found, I used to do a lot of uh, speech coaching. And uh, because I have a background in theater, when I first started my corporate practice, I started in the realm of helping people do better PowerPoint presentations and do better speech coaching. And um, what I found in that work was that a lot of people dread the Q&A portion 
of their uh, PowerPoint presentation or when they have to stand up in front of a, in front of a boardroom because they, they can get through the PowerPoint portion just fine because they, each slide tells them what it is that they need to say, or they have written out their script or the, or that maybe they, if, if they're smart, they don't have a written script. They've got bullet points that they can kind of talk through. But when they get to the question point, that's when people really struggle because they'll often be asked a question that takes them off script or that they don't have a prepared answer for. And I find that when people, uh, start their response by saying, that's a great question. It's usually terribly disingenuous because most people don't actually, A, don't think it's a great question um, because it's, it's in fact actually a troubling question or it's a challenging question or it's throwing me for a loop or I really don't know what to do. So I, I, and I find that it actually doesn't build trust with your audience because right away you're being disingenuous with your audience. So I think it would be much more interesting way to respond when people ask you that questions might be to be a little more transparent and to say, I never thought of that before. Maybe I need a moment to absorb that. Or I can answer only a portion of that question because we've researched that. This other part of the question is something that I'll need to take away and come back to you with. Absolutely. And sometimes I've heard somebody say that before, that's a great question. And then not just not answer the question, <laughs> which I always thought was quite amusing. But uh, yeah, I, I get your point. Sometimes it's, a, you know, it's used as a filler or people not really wanting to have to answer the question. One of my favorites here um, was let's take this offline. Um, and once I understand you know, why people sometimes would suggest that a conversation needs to be held at another point, I've often seen it used um, as a way that uh, something's raised or a topic's raised, we're discussing a, you know, perhaps a, a project and how it's, it's going to pan out. And, and what it really is, is something's raised a concern. And rather than want to address that in the meeting, the idea is we're going to um, discuss it at another point. And it sort of shuts down, the, shuts down the conversation and perhaps sometimes shuts down any dissent. And I'm thinking about our, our book there when sometimes we have either our, our sun hat wearers who are like, you know, why are we even doing this? And perhaps our, our Viking helmet wearers who are being a little bit more confrontational in their response and said, well, let's, the minute it happens, we say, well, let's, let's take this online, offline. Um, and sometimes I feel, well, if we, that means it's going to be discussed at a later date. If we don't, if this is an issue for people now, we're not going to be able to move forward unless we address that issue with them now. Um, and if people feel strongly about it, just telling them, well, it's a bit like uh, uh, you might say to a child, we'll talk about that when we get home, Yeah, um, it never gets dealt with. And therefore, it's something that gets picked up later on. So that's uh, uh, a little pet peeve for me on, 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 in, that, in that line of questioning. Right, right. And because it's, I think it, uh, there, there's something in what you described that makes it suggest that it's disingenuous, that it's, we're not actually going to discuss it offline. Or um, I only want to postpone the discussion so that I can separate you from the group and deal with you in isolation so that it doesn't have an impact on anybody else in the group, right? And I think, um, so I think another one that um, uh, troubles me around uh, in the same theme is fail forward. Because again, it's, it's the same thing that you've, that you've touched on here, Russell, about being disingenuous. It's the sense that I find a lot of organizations pay lip service to innovation and they pay lip service to the notion that we encourage our people to fail forward. Yet in practice, they actually don't pay um, attention to allow or giving people the permission space to fail 
or uh, and they certainly don't take failure, dissect it, learn from it, and take a forward step from it. In fact, I think some organizations either inactively or even actively punish failure, which doesn't create, foster a spirit of innovation when people are like, oh, well, I don't want to take a risk on that, uh, or I don't want to take a chance on this, or I don't want to explore new territory, or I don't want to try out a, a new software, because if it fails, then I'm going to be held responsible. Well, that, that, that's a good point, Ken, because I remember one of my uh, a, a phrase that I heard used once by a senior manager in that context was, we have a no-blame culture. And as a colleague of mine at the time said, yeah, they've got a no-blame culture until something goes wrong, and then we want to find somebody to blame. And it, 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 again, sort of one of those sort of glib phrases that comes out, and I think, again, like fail forward, but it's not the actual reality that people come across when something does go wrong and it's something that's important. Are we really prepared to have a no-blame culture? Are we really prepared to allow people to fail forward? It's sort of, yes, we are as long as it isn't a crucial, as long as it isn't um, what they would term mission critical, yeah, which was another one that I had on there about this thought of things being mission mission critical. Um, and and the reason why, it's, as I've mentioned before, one of my uh, previous stage in my career, I at time worked with a lot of um, co-workers there that were ex-military. And they would recognize that type of phrase because it came from a sort of military background and sort of military missions. Um, but it was sort of used out of context in a, in a corporate world because when they were talking about it being mission critical, um, it was like, so, well, what were, what were we really talking about? Was it a life or death situation? Which is one of the things that these uh, a couple of these individuals would say to me. This, they talk about it as if it's, this is going to be life or death, and it isn't. This is mission critical is really, um, no, it isn't. It's not going to be the success or failure of our, our military campaign or, um, you know, people are going to save X number of lives because we do this. It was normally something fairly innocuous, but it was given this sort of a veneer of grandeur just by giving this that it was, you know, this is going to be mission critical. And it was about whether or not the vending machine was going to be, uh, you know, um, resupplied that week or not. Which I suppose could be if you were really waiting out for something from the vending machine, of course. But uh, and would any of your coworkers be like um, the like? That's not mission critical. I'll show you mission critical. When I was in Iraq, then we knew what mission critical really was. There was this one day when like, or did they did they go off on you like that? Um, uh, probably not quite to the, to there, but it, but it would just well let's say certain expletives would be would be muttered at that point, and in some cases said out loud. Um, so uh, it would have fitted very much into the INFing, <laughs> having talked to you, uh, very much as their as their viewpoint on, on, on some of this, uh, you know, probably out of context use of, of of phrases to give it an idea that something was more important than it really was. Yeah, I, you know, speaking of words being used out of context, story is another one that I find completely overused. And maybe that's just me because of my background as a writer and as a, as a theater person. So, so for me, like story, narrative, these these phrases have a very have a particular meaning, right? In the sense that you're you're telling a fictional story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and end. But I find that when these phrases, either story or narrative, are repurposed um, by uh, advertising gurus uh, or or marketing experts that they're often used in a, in, a, in a sense to 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 
talk about essentially it's it's a substitute for what your core message is or what your brand identity is or what your um what your what your um brand message is and it's 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 not a narrative there is no beginning middle and end right it's not a story there is no there is no character that we are identifying with and seeing go through the uh, multiple stages of a hero's journey in a narrative context that's that, that, that's not what's happening you're and you're you, it's it's not even it's not even in fact a story it's technically speaking it's an anecdote so right and so i i i do i like you i find when words are repurposed and used out of context they in a sense they get stripped of their core meaning and they get stripped of what's important about them and the 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 true the, the true learnings are taken out of them and neutered i, I absolutely can I th- and i think that's you know perhaps one of the things that both you and i find irritating with some of these and and have to hold my hand up i probably have used a number of these phrases my, my, myself in that sort of corporate corporate speech um but it, yeah it's it's taking a word from one context or phrase and then putting it into another as uh, as if it has some sort of a greater meaning than it than it does and it, it sometimes they sort of dilute dil- on one hand dilutes the true meaning um, and we and we see ha- that happening a lot. Politicians are great at doing this with certain phrases that they use. That are, um, and the other one is, 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 is it just sort of doesn't have that. They're trying to have impact that really the, the what they then go on to say doesn't really have. So, for example, the one I, I, I thought of here with this and talking of politicians was this concept about legacy. And people will talk about this will be my my the, the legacy from my time in office or the legacy from my my time in this particular role. And I and I, I hear politicians say that quite a bit, um, but I also have heard this from um, several you know uh, senior managers coming in. I remember one particularly individual who came to to give their sort of you know grow round the country meeting all of the various teams that now came under their their command and. Um, came to talk about well my legacy I see will be and 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 really sort of just you know me and others sitting there thinking this is all about you really isn't it this is not about what is going to be for us or for the customer or for the community or this is what we there was no we it was all about this is really what you're going to do to help me create my legacy so that when I leave you know, because the idea that their part of their role was going to be a stepping stone to something else, and you know we understand that people are coming into a job and they were there, they were going to serve their time of you know eighteen months, two years, and then they were going to move on to a bigger and better job. But the idea that they were going to use the work of what people did in that team as their legacy to enable them to go and get a better job um, wasn't going to necessarily work out for anybody else. And with this particular individual, the irony of all of this is that they did move on to a bigger and better job and their legacy was that everybody who was in that room was laid off that was their legacy everyone lost their job in a restructuring because they had broke the price of the restruct of the new job under the for this individual under the new structure was they needed to offer up um i think it was uh, 60 uh, 60 layoffs and and that was the team the people they'd said this is going to be my legacy two years before was and it was you're not going to have a job i'm going to have a better job and um 
Uh-huh. Yeah, and just to to finish off that 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 we should say narrative, which uh, <laughs> we have here. What uh, was the, the when the individual told everyone that they you know this was going to happen? They 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 had that terrible. I've got some good news and some bad news, and and the people are like, oh, okay. And they said, the good news is, and I'm sure, and they literally use this wording. I'm sure you'll congratulate me that I have received that promotion to job X Y Z. Yeah, um, and people, oh yeah, yeah well, good, good to hear it, you know. And then they said, um, the bad news is that uh, as part of the restructuring, where I get this new job, uh, you you're all getting laid off. <laughs> you're kidding me. <laughs> yeah, that, they actually. I, I, this is this is straight out of Dilbert. This is something that the little dog Dogbird would be saying yep. to their yeah. Wow. And and and, and, and you know, if, if Ricky Gervais had written this for the Office. Um, and uh, you, you would have said, "Yeah, that's funny," but there's no way somebody would say that in real life. And, and I can always remember that was 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 what was what was put. And 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 then the, the, they seemed surprised. And the, the the irony of it was that they seemed surprised afterwards that nobody in that room subsequently came up and sort of congratulated them on their new job. And they sort of people just walked out, and you know there was no no. And they were sort of, oh, is anyone going to come to the bar, you know, and uh, you know, have a drink? And they were like, nobody. And they were sort of, well, that was a bit funny. I invited everybody, and they were all very quite rude. You, thought, you realize you've just told people that they're losing their job, and the, but you are okay because you've got a job. And as a colleague of mine said at the time, they felt like it was we were on the Titanic. They were rowing away in one of the lifeboats and we were locked in stowage beneath it in third class and were about to go under the waves and that's how it felt. So, uh, yeah, uh, they have always been suspicious then when somebody talks about their legacy after that point. I would be too, of course. Yeah, it's it's hard to get buy-in from your team when you're. It, it, it's so evident that you don't really care about what the individuals on your team say or do, or what 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 their prospects are. And and that right there is another one of the one of the phrases that bugs me is is the word buy-in the phrase buy-in. It's um because I find that it's often used in that context as as an idea that's being pushed down from the top on the people who are in the bottom half of that of that triangle it's 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 a it's a new set of values that come from the c suite or it's a new strategic plan that comes from the from the consultants outside of the organization and you're seeking to get members of the organization to buy into this idea right which just the way that i've i've phrased it and i've i i've described it there really suggests that it's something that's being imposed on you or it's something that you're being asked to accept or adopt that is not um, endemic to you or does not resonate with you. And what I often um, say to my clients, in fact, I even put it in my uh, writing, I believe it might even be on my website, is that the the work that I try to do around culture change really starts with the front line, with the grassroots, with the people who actually do the work. And it's rooted in the ways in which you already do your work when you're at your most effective, your most efficient, and your most energized in work. So I often say in my printed material that I'll get you something better than buy-in. I'm going to get you ownership 
in the sense that the people who are, when you start by consulting with the people who actually do the work, and when you start from what works for them when they are at their best and get them to replicate that, then you don't need to get them to buy into your strategy because your strategy is already rooted in something that they already do and they own that culture change from the outset. Yeah, and I can you know attest to that because I'm uh, using one of the exercises that you um, designed in your culture cards uh, with a group that I had that was and using that as a mechanism to help people at grassroots come up with their team charter. Um, and, and interestingly enough, that team charter still hangs in offices in that particular organization. And I think one of the reasons it does is because it was written by the people on the ground who did the job. And if I remember rightly, that the only input the senior management had to the team charter was just tidying up some of the wording as it had been written and just uh, uh, from a, um, a, a sort of semantics point of view or making sure that it read, it read properly and, and, and uh, linguistically was, was right. But other than that, the, 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 the key, this is what we are signing up to as a team, all of those statements came from the people themselves based upon uh, the exercise that I'd, I'd run with them, which was using the card deck you designed, Ken, and it was, um, which was highly useful in terms of what their their values were as a team. Um, but it, yeah, senior man deliberately said that they would step back from it and didn't want it to be that top down. You know, this is what we've all signed up to, and really the people said, "Well, no, we didn't. We just got given it and asked to sign it." It was uh, this is what we've written, and when it was presented to the whole organization, it wasn't a particularly large organization, probably about 50, 60 people, but uh, each person that had contributed one or other of those statements stood up and and said it. This is what, you know, statement number three, this is mine, statement number four. People, So it really came that it was owned by the people because they wrote it. And I think that's why it had the impact that it did, not just something that had been written by a, you know, a marketing firm that came up and, you know, gave it to them. And it was just full of phrases that, would be on anybody's team charter, you know. Well, that's fantastic, Russell. I'm really glad you told me that story. I, I hadn't known that that card deck had been so useful for you and had been so, well, more importantly, had been so useful for your clients. That's a really, really powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. It's a great narrative, Russell. Thank you for sharing <laughs> the, the, the key message that is embedded within the uh, story. I really feel like I, I, there's a real synergy between us and that our work is really in alignment. So thank you. Well, the, well, well the, the work was mission critical and it was uh, important that your legacy there was the, uh, the result from that. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was good, it was good to, to use. And as you know, we are, people are aware of listening to our podcast. You know, we work closely on a lot of, of these um projects but also we do some individual work separately and it was nice to take something away that you'd used elsewhere and i'd used it with one of my my clients again with your permission and it was uh um but it's just how just again just showed how it how effective that was as you say about getting ownership rather than uh you know we didn't get buy-in for it people people owned it because they created it themselves 
Well, and you also, here's another pet word, a pet peeve word that I, I dislike is enrollment. You don't have to ask people to enroll in your culture change project or in, uh, enroll in your team charter um, because, you know, they've, as you say, they're the ones that created it. But, and also it's the wrong word to use. I mean, enrollment. I mean, what are you, a college? Are you a university? <laughs> like, is this, like, are you charging your staff tuition? Is this what you, is, is, is this why you need enrollment? Like, uh, for, for this? I mean, so it's, uh, that, that is in fact another word that, that troubles me. Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the uh, pieces that I've come back to in recently with those sort of staff um, meetings and when you're asking people to have, you know, what they even termed brave conversations, challenging conversations, particularly over the, the last, um, you know, 12 months where we've had a number of maybe sort of social issues have come a little bit more into the forefront. Um, uh, was the phrase about being problematic? Um, and, and why I found this was, again, was a little similar to, you know, the let's take this offline, is that if there was a, a viewpoint that was being espoused, whether it was from, you know, from management or from HR or whoever it happened to be, that if, if people's views differed from that, that it, it was sort of, this was, this was in a couple of examples given, problematic and I always found that interesting because it was like if you said it was not just I well okay I you know I've said this is what our um, our view our viewpoint is as a as a as a company or this is HR's view on you know this particular topic, and you may have employees who had different opinions. It wasn't just said well I disagree with those opinions. It was a case of those opinions themselves were problematic, which I seem to sort of um, delegitimize them that somehow it wasn't okay for people to have a different opinion. Um, we we were not encouraging diverse views because we wanted people to have the same view on a topic. And as we know, you know, you can have a variety of different opinions on and, and ideas on a particular subject. And just because somebody disagreed with you didn't necessarily mean that their views were problematic. They were just different to yours. Um, but it was again, it was sort of a misuse of it because was it really problematic what they said, or was it just? Um, yeah, it made it a bit awkward for you, or it wasn't something you wanted to hear. So we could sort of uh, suppress it by saying, if it's problematic, then there must be obviously be some problem or issue with it, and therefore perhaps it's a view that shouldn't be aired. And it sort of shut people down rather than opening the conversation up. I felt it tended to shut the conversation down. It also suggests that the person who presented the idea is themselves a problem. And we talked before I... about need to separate per problem from person. And also the idea, I think, is separating there that people's uh, opinion doesn't necessarily mean that they are problematic because you don't agree with their particular um, viewpoint on a, on a particular subject. You know, well, I spent a lot of time in my first career in the theater world, a lot of time working in collective theater, so collective creation. So that's the kind of theater where uh, you, instead of starting with a script, you start with an idea and you create the script beginning on day one. Most often you start with a, uh, you know, in the theater world, you'll start with a script and that serves as your blueprint and you know where you're going uh, from the outset. Whereas in uh, creation theater or collective creation, the group is starting with just an idea and they're generating the script as they go. 
in those kinds of situations, in fact, really in all kinds of theater, there's um, it's in order to encourage the ideas going forward. One of my colleagues here in Calgary, his name is Eric Rose, and he's a theater director who works for the theater company Ghost River Theater. Um, he shared with me a phrase. I don't know if he invented it. I don't know if he coined it, but I attribute it to him. the The phrase is that the best idea wins. Doesn't matter whose idea it is, you know, which which is, implies it's usually not his, right? It's like the best idea wins, whether it's his, whether it's the designers, whether it's the actor who has to say the line or do the scene. But it's it doesn't matter who put the idea on the table. But once the idea is put on the table, it gets analyzed and looked at from all sides. Multiple ideas get put on the table, and you start to lose track of whose idea it is because, and especially when you look at may the best idea win, people no longer feel attached or a sense of ownership to those ideas. And this idea, this notion of the best idea wins kind of maybe to some extent sees its um, apex in like comedy writing, such as it's at um, Saturday Night Live or at other sketch comedy shows like that. When there's a group of writers in the room, an idea or a joke is put forward or put on the table. And what I what I've been told is that in those environments, um, everyone who is present in the room gets a writing credit for that sketch. So it doesn't matter who originated the sketch. It doesn't matter who came up with the best punchline in the sketch. It doesn't matter who came up with the 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 twist ending that really made the whole sketch sing. None of that matters because nobody really owns the sketch anymore. Everyone who is present in the room now has a writing credit on that. Even if they never say anything, even if they never contribute anything. The notion is that their mere presence of being in the room, of encouraging others or teasing ideas out of others is in itself an act of creation, an act of writing, and thus they get a writing credit. One of the drawbacks of this, unfortunately, is that it means that people will like not leave the room, even if they have to go to the bathroom or pee or something like that. So it can be you can find people sitting there right, cross-legged hanging on for the last second because they want to make sure they get that writing credit on that idea. But at its best, it really epitomizes that notion of may the best idea win. Well, that's a good point, Ken. I mean, I think from a from a creativity and innovation point of view, but also when we think of it in a corporate setting around the you know, the what they term the, the marketplace of of ideas. In that, if you if a, ideas or opinions are being voiced, rather than trying to you know take them offline or they're problematic or we, we you know that's a great question, but you know, because if you actually get the idea, get it out there and people have a chance to air their views, then you can start to see by being able to debate that with others, a strong idea that is, is helps to be well thought through has a chance to surface, whereas, you know, perhaps there's something that's a little bit more, um, you know, ill thought through or, um, you know, badly articulated something isn't going to survive through that through that sort of a robust debate because only if you've got been able to think through your um your views and opinions and had them sort of tested against other people's arguments who may have different opinions to you can you start to see that you get better understanding of why different people view things in different ways um but also an idea of a consensus perhaps of to what the way forward is rather than this oh no People have got different views. Let's let's separate these out. We don't want to discuss different views, <laughs> which you know, we want all the people to have the same view. Here's the view that you need to have. You know, that's uh, 
uh, a longer process, but probably ultimately is going to be something that that is not as useful in an organisation if you're always wanting to not have potential um, discussion around certainly some emotive topics. Well stated, Russell. Well said. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our bullshit bingo card. I think we've, if we haven't actually done a deep dive into each of these uh, topics or bullet points, we certainly at least use them in a sentence. So I think uh, one way or the other, I think we've gleaned some uh, key learnings out of the conversation here today, Russell. So, so thanks for sharing all of that. Well, we do have our secret sauce to be able to put all this together. So um, if you've enjoyed or found some mild amusement from uh, from Ken and I's musings on Bullshit Bingo, uh, many of the phrases that we have uh, discussed and um, referred to on uh, today's podcast are available on our Bullshit Bingo card that you can download by following the link in the show notes. Okay, so this is available for you, and you can use this in a number of ways. One could be you can take it to your next corporate meeting so that you can go and check these off and see uh, how many of these phrases are used in your corporate setting. Um, unfortunately, there is no prize for you uh, if you're able to win all of them. So you can shout bingo loudly to your, to, uh, to your team and they'll wonder what on earth you were doing, but that's um, no prize from us anyway. Alternatively, you could sit and re-listen to this uh, podcast episode and go through and check how many of those phrases uh, we used and were Ken and I able to include all of those that we had listed on our Bullshit Bingo card in um, the episode that you've listened to today. So uh, I think we should I think we should find a way to incentivize this for our <laughs> listeners, Russell. And so perhaps one of the ways that we can do that is to encourage them to, if there are other phrases that we haven't used and that aren't in our bullshit bingo card, please put them in the comments box below. And if we can gather sufficient numbers, then we can reissue a second edition bingo card. Absolutely. It sounds a great idea a great idea, Ken. We can we can we can do that. I also really appreciate, Russell, you're mentioning the story around those shift cards and how that had been useful for you and your client. So why don't we also throw into the comments box a link to the shift card deck on the website so that they, on my website, so that um, people who are interested in learning more can go um, to that uh, page and just kind of read a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Sounds, sounds like a good good idea. So check out, folks. There's going to be two links on our uh, show notes. One is for you to be able to download um, the Bullshit Bingo card, and the second is to get some information on the shift cards available from uh, Ken's website. Might be something that is useful for you and your team if you're looking to get ownership rather than simple buy-in to an idea or project. Thanks very much, everybody. It's been a real pleasure for us to share our version of Bullshit Bingo with you. We look forward to your comments being pasted in the box. And if you have not yet subscribed to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast, you can do that through your favorite podcast provider. And we'll see you when the next one drops in two weeks. Absolutely. And we will attempt to bullshit our way through another episode of I Need to Effing Talk to You. Okay, folks, thanks very much. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Bye.